Amen. It was wonderful. Good morning, church. It is wonderful to be back at First Press and to join this family in worship this morning and to reflect together around stories of the ordinary. As I've been introduced already, my name is David Vasquez-Levy. I serve as president at Pacific School of Religion, a seminary right on the other side of campus. Uh, we are part, along with other schools, of the Graduate Theological Union. And it's just a delight to be here. We've been together a number of times in person when that was just the normal thing to do. And now back in person with a hybrid experience of being both here and online, outside and in other places, glad that we can connect together. We've been together here at times when half of, you know, some of you were in cardboard shape, including the Browns, Byron and Jan, that attended worship faithfully as cardboard cutouts and got to preach to them uh, with a few of us here in the sanctuary. We've been together in this space thinking about podcasts and how Pastor Charlene's conversations move well within this community and beyond around the issues that shape our work and life. So it is great to be back together here and to think of the many ways in which our connections between PSR and First Press continue to grow and deepen. I'm particularly grateful today for this invitation to be with you, grateful to Pastor Charlene, Pastor Mark, and Pastor Tom, and grateful also for the partnership with Professor Grace So. I think you know her as Christian Formation Coordinator, but we know her as Professor So on campus as she is now part of the PSR faculty, and we are delighted for those connections. So. As Pastor Charlene mentioned towards the end of the video, this text for today is quite familiar for such a time as this. This is the text we turn to our attention to today in the book of Esther, chapter 4. It is a familiar text, but perhaps not such a familiar context. If you don't get that reference, talk to, you know, to Professor So. She teaches one of our courses on the contextual use of texts. So you have text and context. This book of Esther is a book in uh, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, and it is set in the Persian period during the 5th century BC. It features and evolves around a plot to commit genocide against the Jews. It is a challenging story, and like other stories that you have been engaged in. It is the stories of ordinary people trying to respond to extraordinary times of demand, of expectation, and trying to make the choice about how much they will participate in that reality in response and how to bring into that response the legacies, the stories, the traditions that have shaped them, the identities that formed them. There are a number of characters in the story. I'll just mention a couple for us to think about. Esther, of course, the title person in the story. Sometimes when I've done the reading of Esther in communities, I invite people to think about who would play them if this was a play. You know, if you were staging this book, who would play what? And so you can think about that, who you might want Esther to be played, you know, to play Esther. There is Haman. And every time we say the name Haman, you're supposed to make a lot of noise because he's the evil guy. And then you've got Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's 
kind of a little confusing, the relationship, cousin, uncle, the sort of adopted parent, a little bit of a complex relationship. Esther, through a beauty pageant, has ended up becoming uh, the queen, and uh, one of many anyway, uh, to King Xerxes, and he is now being convinced by Haman, that's the evil guy, again, noise for that, and then he has convinced them that the Jews are the problem. May this story becomes familiar rather quickly. That you can identify one group of people and attach features to them and decide that if we just blame them and get rid of them, then things will be fine. That it's not you or me, it's really them that are the problem. And so Haman has convinced the king to eliminate all of the Jews. The twist in the plot is that Esther is a Jew. Her name is not actually Esther. She is using that name precisely because of the conditions she is living in to pass by, to play the part, to fit in. But a moment comes when she must think about that decision. Let us listen to the scriptures, the reading from chapter 4 of Esther. Now, we are going to try this one way. Sorry, one second. Now we got all ready for the scriptures. Uh, so we are going to do this. This text is one of the ones that's read in Purim, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. I'll say more about that in a second. But there is a tradition that when the word Haman is heard, we do make some noise, okay, and hissing and booing. It only comes up twice in chapter 4, so you're going to have to be really alerted. I'll make a big pause for you to do that, okay? And then whenever Mordecai or Esther are mentioned, then we make a lot of noise, but happily, right? Because we're excited. There are heroes in the story. All right, ready? So when Mordecai... There we go, there we go. So when Mordecai learned all that Haman had done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. We're about to mark Ash Wednesday with ashes and sackcloth. We'll hear that reference oftentimes about the ways we mark moments of grief, of repentance, of disorientation. So Mordecai went through the city, oh, thank you, <laughs> wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate cloth with sackcloth. In every province, whenever the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai. Come on, don't lose the energy. You've got to keep going. So he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept him. Then Esther called for Hatak, not Haman, so don't, no noise. So that's her servant. So then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and order him to go to Mordecai 
to learn what was happening and why. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther, explain to her and charge her to go to the king to make supplication to him and to entreat him for her people. Hatach went to t and told Esther and Mordecai what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatach and gave him a message for Mordecai. This is a good chapter, lots of joy. All the king's servant and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man, she said to him, if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone that may, that person may live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, he told them to reply to her, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king. Though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai yeah. then went away and did everything as Esther yeah. had ordered him. The word of the Lord. I pointed out as we were preparing for worship, the end of that text just strikes me. Mordecai did everything as Esther had ordered him. Men learn to do what women tell them to do exactly. And then we repeat the word of the Lord and we all say thanks be to God. So that's certainly a part of the story to be attentive to about the voices of those that often are not heard in the story. I was about to play a noisemaker sound, but we got so well into the way in which the story of Esther is read during the festival of Purim that you can imagine it. 
Esther is one of the scrolls that are read for Jewish holidays throughout tradition. There's five scrolls, Megillat, the book of Esther, the book of Song of Songs, the book of Ruth, Lamentation, and Ecclesiastes. And the tradition is that for those festivals, we read the entire book in community. They're not that long. Esther is a few chapters. Ruth is about four chapters. But the idea is to read texts in community, to hear the stories of ordinary people, stories of songs, of love, the stories of those who try to figure out what to do with Ecclesiastes, knowing that change is ever-present, that it will come and that seasons come and seasons go. We are invited by the community and the tradition in the Jewish community to listen to lamentations, to the grief that comes at moments of loss. But the reading of Esther has a particular twist to it, in which when it is read in Purim, which starts in two weeks on March 6th, will be the festival of Purim, and it reflects things you may be familiar with within the Christian communities around Mardi Gras, which I don't know why you all are here today instead of being down, you know, in uh, New Orleans getting ready for Lent just properly. <laughs> it's similar in that there is a lot of rubber, you know, parties and celebrations. There is customs and masks to hide identities while we do our thing. Uh, there is also a lot of great food and celebration to recognize the beginning of a period of reflection at Lent. Mardi Gras, basically, you know, Fat Tuesday is the translation of that word, is a marking in the Christian tradition that recognizes the beginning of letting go of that excess of our lives, whatever's left of fat in our lives, that we may prepare for a time of austerity. This contrast between that celebration and then the austerity that follows, the ashes we walk to, is captured in the reading of the stack of, of Esther at Purim, when children dress up in costumes, when communities come together and read the text and make all kinds of noise to blot out the name of Haman, the one who had a plan to destroy the people, the one who wanted to choose a particular group as the scapegoat. There are a lot of customs of blotting out those names that we do not want to think about. As a nation right now, we are in a process of trying to understand how seriously we will look at our history and the legacies of colonialism, of racism, of many other ways that have divided our churches, our communities, our families. How much are we willing to listen and to name those realities in history that really are part of who we are? There's also a lot of traditions of dressing up, of putting on costumes physically at Halloween so that the Ghouls and others don't recognize us at that moment when it's thin, the line between the living and the dead. Lots of traditions in various communities around dressing up are fun and celebratory, but they also try to capture a deeper reality. How do we wrestle with difficult pasts, with stories of genocide, with threats to our communities, with racism and sexism and other ways of exclusion.
And how do we do that in dealing and telling stories to children? So in the Jewish tradition at Purim, you play with a story that's quite serious in order to be able to process it. And you capture in the noise-making the need to make noise in the naming of the realities of inequality and the call to do that in our lives. For such a time as this, ordinary people throughout history stand up and we tell and hear their stories. The stories of the dreamers who having lived as undocumented children in the United States, often under false names, just like Esther, in order to make it, at some point felt that they needed to step out for such a time as this and walk into the halls of Congress to demand a change to immigration. Young men and women, ordinary men and women, who went to the counters in the South and sat and asked to be served at places where only whites were welcomed. Ordinary people like Fred Korematsu, who in his early 20s was taken into an internment camp along with many other Japanese Americans, but refused to accept this as legal or his right and fought for 40 years for restitution of that act that the government, his own government, had done against him. Ordinary people whose stories inspire and challenge us to think about how do we respond at such a time as this? How do ordinary people respond in extraordinary times? And as we've been hearing in the series in the community, witness of ordinary people seeking ways to live out, as we heard today from Aaron Soter Johnson's testimony. How do we bring the things that matter to us, our faith, into our work, into our schools, into our lives, influence politics in ways that feel right to do in a very complex society? How do we get a sense of agency out of our communities, our stories and traditions when we are dealing with such large, overwhelming realities about a warming planet, an inequality that has deeply shaped everything in our nation from education to distribution of wealth to housing opportunities to everything. Salvation will come to the Jews from another quarter Mordecai says. It's an interesting phrasing. See, in the Hebrew Bible, whenever something is said in the third person, uh, sorry, in, in, in a passive voice, as if it will happen, it is a reference to the divine. God will bring salvation. It's interesting because actually God is never mentioned in the book of Esther by name, not once. And yet, those references to salvation will come for the Jews from another quarter if you don't stand up. What Mordecai says to Esther is that she, for such a time, may stand up. That what she's being asked to do is to get on the side of what God will do. 
See, these stories of ordinary people in extraordinary time are not focused only on what happens in the sweet by and by. They are really focused on how we respond to very specific moments in life. So she has an opportunity to think about where God is in history and how she may get behind God in those actions and join God in this transformation. It is that awareness that helps Esther to consider the impossible, to walk into the king's presence, which is punishable by death if she has not been invited. It is that reason that allows her to think about the fact that even though Mordecai himself cannot come in without threatening that, that she will take that risk. An ordinary person in an extraordinary time making connections to that moment. These are ordinary stories, but they are counter-narratives. See, in the texts that are read in these five festivals in the Jewish community, including the book of Esther, the other one that's read is the story of Naomi. And scholars believe that both of these short stories of women in the Bible are counter-narratives to the dominant narrative that was at that time emerging following the exile. The book of Esther and Nehemiah, which come right before the book of Esther, I'm sorry, Ezra and Nehemiah, which come right before the book of Esther, are books that call for a xenophobic reaction, an expulsion of foreign wives, a fear of the other, the kinds of voices in times of crisis that become very afraid of the other. And these two stories of two young women provide a counter-narrative to that. See, Naomi was that foreigner wife, that, foreigner, that foreign wife, who became eventually the grandmother of King David. It is a counter-narrative. And Esther is that foreigner in a land that must recognize that the expulsion or the scapegoating of a group cannot be let to stand. What are the counter-narratives of ordinary people in extraordinary times that we are listening to as a church? There's a lot of uncertainty about the future of many things in our lives and our communal lives together. And the dominant narratives are clear, oftentimes about decline and fear, concern, rising inequalities, all kinds of fearful, appropriate, sometimes, stories and narratives. How do we, as our ancestors taught us, listen to the counter-narratives? The stories of those that may shape our lives differently, the ordinary people stepping up each day. For us at Pacific School of Religion, our commitment has been to listen to the stories and the voices of an emerging, diverse generation and to center those voices. In our podcast, Change Happens Now, that's who we are listening to. To conversation between young people of color who are leading extraordinary lives in this moment. To listen to how they see the future of spiritually rooted leadership, the possibility to connect what we believe with what we do, to find our way to be on the side of God who shapes the world 
towards a world where all can thrive. I invite you to listen with us into those podcasts, into your communities, into your families, into others, for the counter-narratives of those who are being attentive to God's voice in the world. Amen.